politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, friends. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner on KPFK. This week's program was preempted for a special day-long series of programs commemorating the first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And so while we'll resume next week, I thought I'd run as a podcast in its place an interview of me about my book, Fearless Intelligence, that was done by a colleague, Nita Valens, the host of Intervision, on Fridays at 1 o'clock. I hope you enjoy this. I don't talk about my book on the radio very much. It is called Fearless Intelligence. The subtitle is The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness, and it's available in all fine bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books, you'll be able to order Fearless Intelligence. What's it about? Here we go. This is Danita Vallon's Intervision Show from just a couple of weeks ago. Enjoy. What is consciousness? What is the difference between religion and spirituality? These are big questions, but we have answers today with my very special guest. Welcome to InnerVision. I'm your host, Nita Valens, and this is where we talk about health, psychology, spirituality, and your well-being. Today on InterVision, we will be speaking with Michael Benner. He is the author of Fearless Intelligence, The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. He is well-known throughout Southern California for his popular human potential talk radio programs on KABC, KLOS, KLSX, KCBS, and more, and is now back with us right here on KPFK-FM at 1 o'clock on Tuesdays, hosting the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. So, Michael Benner, it's great to have you with me. And just to give a quick moment of history, and for the listener who may not be that familiar with KPFK, you have a Tuesday show once again. You were with us many years, and then you went off to paradise, living in Hawaii for a number of years, but you're back with us, and you came back in January of 2021. And so you're the Tuesday host, I'm the Friday host, and I wanted to bring you on here today so that we could do some things together, such as reintroduce you, so to speak, as well as a bit of fundraising since it's that time of year for KPFK again. So let's get to know you. You have written a book, Fearless Intelligence, The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness, and you have been studying consciousness, awareness, and spirituality for years. 
What sparked your interest in this? And tell us a bit about how you got to that. Wow. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your show, Nita. It's always fun to do this. You and I go back to the early 90s, I think, on KPFK. And yeah, I've been in and out of there, but it's a joy to be back. And I guess we sort of switched spots. You were Tuesday and I was Friday, and now we've reversed roles. But to answer your question, I think I have to go back to my college days. And for whatever reason, maybe it's because I remember the very first television that my parents bought and sitting in front of that and being fascinated by the news. The war in Vietnam came a little later than that. I guess it was a war in Korea before that when I was a very small child. But the whole idea of foreign war and then the civil rights movement and listening as a young boy to Dr. King and just being fascinated with watching Walter Cronkite every night, I was, uh, like many in my boomer generation, interested in knowing the truth and what's really going on. So uh, I think that's why I became interested in folk music and, you know, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez in the 60s and that whole Hootenanny revival that was happening just before the Summer of Love and then Haight-Ashbury. So my interest in current events and political, social, economic change, folk music and its progressive orientation caused me to decide I should be a journalist. And so I majored in broadcast journalism at Michigan State and worked my way through college, actually, at a local commercial radio station. And then I was off and running four years in Detroit before coming to Los Angeles in the mid-70s and then doing commercial radio news and commentary, radio talk shows, And pretty soon I realized, Nita, that the truth I was looking for, I was not going to find in the news. It wasn't politics and government and policy and partisanism that was going to reveal what I really wanted, the roots, what's really going on here. I realized was in the belief systems of people. And I noticed how malleable those belief systems are. And why do people believe what they believe? Of course, that leads to why do they think and feel and behave as they do. And that led me to consciousness. Oh, I see. It's a mindset. Most people believe what they believe, not because it's well studied, but simply because they've heard it a bunch of times. And so I began to study hypnosis as well as meditation and get a better understanding of the formation of a belief system and the ethics that go with an evolving consciousness. I think that's what really hooked me as I began to realize that developing so-called higher consciousness or expanded awareness included progressive ethics, a new set of exalted values that I really liked. It felt good to me and continues to (laughs) to this day. So you were doing radio, and you had, as far as I know, dating back to the 90s when we first met here at KPFK, you always had call-in programs. So you also got the flavor for learning how people were thinking and what they were feeling in a huge way 
because you'd be on whatever topic and then taking calls all hour. So was that giving you a perspective or answers in the arena that you were looking for in terms of how people develop their ideas, beliefs, standards, mores, etc.? Or did you yeah. find that there were so many differences, it just was like impossible to categorize? No, I think the former. I think what it led me to, Nita, was what is now called emotional intelligence. We didn't have that word until Daniel Goleman's book came out in the mid-90s. And I understand you recently interviewed and have in the past interviewed Daniel Goleman and his research, um, actually his reporting of research around EQ, so-called emotional intelligence, I realized that was the portal or the doorway to spirituality and that people believe what they believe, not only because of the way they think, but in many ways even more as the result of the way they feel. People have much better control over their thoughts. That's what we go to school to learn <laughs> is how to think, right? <laughs> right. But you never take a class, even if you study psychology uh, until recently, there were no classes in why you feel the way you feel and what are these emotions? Do they have meaning? What is their significance? What is their value or purpose? How do you manage an emotion? Because a lot of people have said to me, Michael, emotional intelligence, that makes no sense. When I get emotional, my intelligence goes out the window. I, <laughs> you know, I, I say and do things that I almost immediately regret. How could I get intelligence out of emotions? And I said, basically, by calming down. Emotions are like water in many ways. The disturbed water, if you're on a pier or a dock or in a boat looking down at the water, and if it's disturbed at all, waves or ripples even, you're not going to be able to see into that water. But when the water becomes calm and clear and smooth, you can not only see down into it, but you can see what's reflected on the surface from above. And that clarity comes from breathing, relaxing. That's what meditation and contemplation does for us, is that it calms the emotions so that we can use our intuition beyond logic use our intuition to access the meaning of the emotion. And a deeper wisdom gives us access to those values and those ethics that I talked about that reveal that, uh, yeah, we are animals in many ways, but we also are spiritual beings, and we can refine ourselves and develop that spiritual side and bring to bear those exalted values and ethics. Well, that makes sense. And I have the impression that as you describe that, especially the metaphor for emotions being like water, and if we're upset, then it's like disturbed water. So it seems there would be a process to learn to calm down. That would be something that I think you and I have experienced and discussed previously that you can't just calm down one time and manage things. This is a practice, kind of a daily thing. Like we get up, we take a shower, and what is our daily practice to get centered, to get calm, to be ready for the day on a mental, emotional, spiritual level? And we can define all that. 
that has to be some form of meditation or contemplation that brings about a practice of mindful self-awareness that we can carry out into the day and use throughout the day, even though we may not be meditating, to reorient ourselves continually. Because the animal part of us is always feeling threatened. You can't get on the 101 or the 405 and not have the amygdala react and put you into fight or flight. You're in great danger just because you, <laughs> <just> <laughs> yes. you drive the freeway every day doesn't mean you don't know deeply how much danger you're putting yourself in. And, you know, then your boss yells at you and your spouse rejects you or kids don't understand you or your parents are mean to you or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of stress and pressure that keeps putting us into this all or nothing, either or binary mentality. We see that expressed on all levels, particularly partisanism and the divisiveness and the polarization that we see socially and politically. But it's all a function of this poor amygdala, this little center in the base of the brain that's in charge of fight or flight. It's very emotional. It's easily frightened. We are the offspring or the survivors of people who were very easily frightened. The people who sat and pondered in the presence of some danger were often killed, you know, by a rival tribesman or eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And they didn't pass that on. What got passed on was the knee-jerk reaction that caused us to inherit this hair trigger. And we're very easily frightened and stressed, and the emotions rear up, and the waves get all disturbed, and that's when we do and say really regrettable things. That's where missed opportunities and some really bad decisions come from. So I want to return to the amygdala in just a second and let our listener know that with me today is Michael Benner here on InterVision. And Michael is author of a book called Fearless Intelligence, The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. And he's also host since January of 2021 of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. So amygdala hijack has become quite a common term in your field and my field. Basically, that's the fight, flight, or freeze taking over of the brain, where I love what you just said about how then that's when our poorest decisions happen, our poor thinking, our response, maybe with words that we wish we hadn't said as soon as they come out of our mouth, causing regret and more stress, etc. One thing you said also is that very easy piece of us that gets frightened and stressed since the pandemic, which is now well over a year plus tax, what do you think has happened to that level of fear and stress that we were already experiencing? What's your take on that? Oh, I think it's multiplied a couple of viruses, not only the COVID virus, but the Trump virus. The deliberate promotion of fear and anxiety for political gain and for power and profit to divide the nation by frightening people even more than they were already frightened. And, you know, the phenomena of being afraid of the other is quite a complex psychological and spiritual dilemma. 
ultimately to a student of spirituality, we come to understand in time that there is no other. So when you're frightened, you get pulled down out of that spiritual awareness into the animal body where your survival depends upon recognizing, yes, in fact, there are others and they're not you. And there are often, if there's only two ways anything can be, the good guys and bad guys, then anything other than you is in opposition. They're opposite to you. If there's only two ways anything can be, and if they're opposite, they're opposing you, they're a threat. And that explains the xenophobia and the anti-immigration policies, but then the ruling elite turned that on the working class, and now the other is somebody who has more or less melanin in their skin, or the other is the rich or the poor. It's just this maddening binary thinking, this bifurcation of everything, which leaves out the middle way. There is no third option, much less a fourth way of looking at things, or a fifth alternative, or a sixth or a seventh angle in your perspective. You know, there's very little allowing for, well, I disagree with you, but we can still get along. You know, I don't need for you. Imagine how boring the world would be if we all agreed on everything. So we don't want that, really. In fact, we're enriched by the differences. You know, when the restaurants open up, we'll look forward to not just steaks and chops. I want Chinese tonight. How about Thai food? How about some Mexican food? You know, let's do Italian tonight. The language, the custom, the dress, the religions, these enrich a person provided they're not frightened of something other than or different from. And that's our ultimate enemy. We think it's hatred, but it's really fear. I think that's a really good point. We're speaking with Michael Benner today. He is the host of the Tuesday Spot at 1 o'clock, and we are talking about spirituality, religion, power and influence, and more. So one thing I wanted to ask you for perhaps the listener who is just joining us and maybe not familiar with all that we're talking about, which is somewhat ethereal to many people, what is the difference between religion and spirituality? <laughs> what a great question. Not easily answered. Religion ideally is spiritual. I would say religion, organized religion, is a subset of spirituality. In other words, to be religious, you have to be spiritual, but you can be spiritual without being a member of an organized religion. You know, sometimes I think about it as being like, uh, here's one of my uh, better allegories, Imagine going into Baskin Robbins or some other wonderful uh, ice cream store and finding they only have vanilla. You'd be very disappointed. And I'll even say. if you like, <laughs> <laughs> and even if you like Jamoka almond fudge, maybe today you're in a mood for strawberry or something else. Why do we have to choose one religion? You see, why can't we, like so many people, embrace numerous religions? We could, of course, if we had the time, if we took the time, if it were a priority for us, then we could read the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Koran, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, and all of the holy books of the world. That's what mysticism is. 
Mysticism is sort of the liberal wing of all the various religions, but it goes beyond being organized. Primarily, the benefits, I think, of organized religion are fellowship and worshiping together. But if you're willing to go it alone or in small groups, if to you spirituality is more of an experience than some ritual you go through, if you want to personalize it rather than just listen to some guy up there who's appointed himself as the chief honcho and CEO of the way you think about religion, his or her interpretation of holy books but not yours, then maybe organized religion is for you, sort of like elementary school or a stepping stone to spirituality. But if it doesn't answer the difficult questions that you may have about spirituality, which to me simply means being a spiritual being or a being of energy, of light, as well as a material physical body, even Einstein put an equal sign between energy and mass. Well, that's spirit and matter. And primary in that equation is the energy or the spirit. That's eternal. The material, the body, physicality, that's all impermanent. None of that stuff lasts. So spirit is substantial as energy beings. We don't have to limit ourselves to one or another of the religions that have been organized and are institutionalized and concerned with power and influence. We can study on our own or in small study groups, do our meditation, do our contemplation, do our listening. You know, so much of prayer is thought of as a petitioning, sort of like your wish list for Santa Claus. But how about some listening? You know, how about opening yourself in a receptive state to the insight and guidance that's available to us in those moments of revelation or epiphany, those aha experiences, we can engender those with relaxation, as we said before, the calming of the emotion. So, you know, we could do hours on this, but I think to answer your question about the difference between religion and spirituality, that's pretty much my basic understanding of the distinction. With me is Michael Benner, and he is author of Fearless Intelligence, The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. So, here's a question for you. Taking that word awareness from the title of your book and juxtaposing that with consciousness, is there a difference or are they the same? Well, it depends on who you ask. I interviewed recently on my Tuesday 1 p.m. Ageless Wisdom show here on KPFK an eminent scientist and researcher and author, Peter Russell. And he's very clear about his decision to conflate those terms and use them synonymously. And with great respect, I leaned into him a little bit and quoted an Indian sage named Nisargadatta. And Sri Nisargadatta is very clear in suggesting that awareness is the absolute. Awareness should be capitalized. It's the ground of being. It's a reference to divinity without the personification of the man on the cloud. So awareness is absolute. Consciousness, in Nisargadatta's definition, would be relative. You would be conscious of this, 
but perhaps less conscious of that, and maybe not conscious of this at all, like sitting at a traffic light after it's already turned green. In one sense, you're conscious, you're not unconscious or asleep, you're sitting in a car and your mind is somewhere, but you weren't paying attention to the traffic light, so the guy behind you honks on the horn to wake you up and bring you back to a higher <laughs> level of consciousness, right? But I've heard others reverse the two, and many just, as Peter Russell suggested, conflate the two. So it's a matter of further study. And how you use capital letters, there could be a capital A awareness and a small a awareness for that which is relative and so too consciousness could be capitalized if you're using it to refer to the absolute so in the title of your book when you say fearless intelligence how does that relate to those concepts and what do you mean by that well (laughs) when the phrase came to me I was thinking about the opposite, which is how stupid we get when we're afraid, (laughs) right? So the opposite of fearless intelligence would be fearful stupidity. And if we look back at the dumbest things that we do, again, bad decisions, mistakes, or just overlooked opportunities, you know, missed chances, when we just weren't present, We weren't aware, we weren't awake, we weren't clear. It was because of anxiety of some sort, nonspecific anxiety. And boy, there's so many words for that. Fear, stress, a whole spectrum from panic and horror all the way down to mild apprehension and nervousness. Just the slightest little bit of worry or doubt is fear right? And it's important to know, and I make the point in the book, that fear is really not about danger at all. Fear is a feeling of not understanding or not being aware whether dangerous or not. How often have people said to me, Michael, I don't know why you're so worried, or what are you stressing about? What are you afraid of? And we have to admit, well, I really don't know. Well, that's the point. That's what fear is. And even if we could point to a clear and present danger and say, I'm afraid of that, it's still what we don't know about the danger that's frightening. And the proof of that is that the more we know about the danger, the less frightening it becomes. So we should not conflate fear and danger. Fear is a feeling of what we do not understand or a lack of awareness. So it follows that awareness and intelligence would come from learning to be fearless. So we could apply the pandemic to that in the sense that we don't really have all the information about it. We have some information. Some information is a little frightening. And then other information that comes out conflicts that information. So it's hard to settle into what's really going on. So I think that uncertainty and that unknown piece plays a big part in that. What do you think of that and how... Do you advise people to cope with that? Well, Ralph Waldo Emerson famously wrote, knowledge is the antidote to fear. I don't know that you could say it any more clearly than that. I have a chapter in my book where I discern between knowledge and understanding. 
I think we can have knowledge without understanding. And so, in a sense, to understand your knowledge is to move beyond the simple gathering of data. So maybe Emerson, it might have been better if he had written, understanding is the antidote to fear. But (laughs) having said that, that's the antidote. So the problem is ignorance. And fear and ignorance, or anxiety and confusion, if you want to use softer words, is a vicious cycle. Each feeds the other. And that's like a downward spiral or a vicious cycle, like the toilet bowl, you know, glug, glug, glug. Fear confusing us, and that makes us more anxious and more confused and more anxious and more confused, and down we spiral. Well, the opposite of that would be love and understanding. That's what love really is. It's awareness. It's consciousness. Love is understanding, which promotes that relaxed, safe, peaceful state we call love, which promotes further understanding and more love and more understanding, and that's an upward spiral. It's a cycle, but this one lifts us up higher and higher. And the higher you float, the more elevated your perspective, the broader your horizons. And now you see much more than when you were dragged down into the mud. So part of fearless intelligence and the whole psychology of spirituality is understanding love not merely as some emotional affinity that we have for you know, family or lovers or the pet dog or the cat or some people love their cars and their houses. But love has awareness itself. Love has consciousness because it really means understanding, recognition, realization. To see, to be awake. There's that great story about Buddha in one of the sutras where he's as a young teacher coming into a clearing in the forest, and he just, as the story goes, was just radiant, this this being of light. And people were blown away. They were just gobsmacked. And one shouted out, what are you, a god? And Buddha said, no, I'm not a god. And another shouted, well, you must be some great sage or avatar. And Buddha says, no, no, not at all. And A third yelled out, well, what are you? And Buddha said, I'm awake. That's all it is. It's just being awake. So a little while ago, we were talking about a little bit of the history of KPFK when we were on a little break. And I thought we could bring that into the conversation because when you first landed here, the general manager said to you, well... I don't think a spirituality show is going to be a go for KPFK. And here you are all these years, if not decades later. So talk about what that experience was like, because you had really, years ago, a pretty revolutionary, extraordinary idea to come on public radio and talk about spirituality. Well, we called it the human potential movement back then. In fact, I worked on a pilot television program that nothing ever happened to called The Possible Human. And it was about basically using things like yoga, martial arts, meditation, self-hypnosis, peak performance, sports psychology to develop our expertise, our ability to not only be more successful personally, but to live more fulfilled lives by 
enhancing our contributions to other people. And the human potential movement then became the Aquarian conspiracy in the 1980s and something that was often called a New Age philosophy, although (laughs) ageless wisdom obviously suggests that these ideas are as old as time itself from time out of mind. And indeed, they are part of what's often called the perennial philosophy or Prisca Theologia. And we see in this an understanding that There is a point of intersection where all philosophy and all religion comes together. And it's around the heart. It's around the wisdom of the heart. It's around love and truth, compassion, kindness. What in the Pali or Sanskrit language is called metta, loving kindness. And caring. And I often say to people, students, clients, listeners, that They are not what they think of themselves so much as they are, or we are, each of us, what we care about. And I think that's provocative to have people consider that if we could stop judging ourselves, then perhaps we'd be less judgmental of other people and supplant that mental, logical self-loathing, because it's mostly negative judgment with some compassion for others, empathy, but also self-compassion, and learn to move our awareness from our heads down into our bodies and actually feel our feelings, our physical feelings and, of course, our emotional feelings. Both are felt in the body. And when you begin to, in a relaxed, safe, and quiet state, give color to an emotion or set of feelings. Imagine them having texture or fragrance or flavor without physically moving. Just imagine reaching out to touch an emotion. Your mind opens, your heart opens, you begin to see. It's as if the fog clears away. And through a non-logical process that I have to call intuition, I don't know a better word for it than intuition, you begin to realize, I love that word, that which becomes real is realized. Self-realization is more than self-actualization, as Maslow intended it. It's a much more profound understanding of who we are, what we're for, our relationship to all, and it's liberating. It it goes way beyond success to a quality of fulfillment that makes life just so precious that there is no more battle, no more struggle, no more either-or, no more you-or-me, but a world of you-and-me. So are you saying that self-compassion and self-realization is actually tied to self-care? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think of the word self-care hyphenated word as meaning security. The ultimate personal security is to care for yourself. But that sort of begs the question, which self? Because the ego likes to jump in and take credit anytime we refer to ourselves as a self. The ego says, oh, you mean me, the separated self, the guy that's all alone and struggling with the world. The cause of all of our 
self-hatred and loathing and fears of inadequacy. That's the egoic self that's afraid that it's separate and alone and distinctive. And yet there is a higher self, so-called. Again, a point of intersection or of harmony where we recognize that we may have unique fingerprints and DNA, and that diversity and those distinctions are important. But even more important is what we have in common with each other, the way we feel about our children, the way we care about our pets, the way we ideally care about each other and learn to love each other, even love our enemies. And again, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you got to go hug somebody who's a threat to you, somebody who wants to you know, hurt you or your family. You don't have to even to be nice to them, but you do have to love them, which means have some compassion, some empathy, and some understanding of their suffering. And that goes a long way toward resolving fear and the hostility or aggressiveness that may come from being afraid. As a psychotherapist, and I'm sure in the coaching that you do, We find lots of families where there are these years-long, divided people not speaking to each other, siblings, parents, all kinds of sort of fractures in the relationships of families. And I imagine that a big component of it is fear and anger. But what you're talking about right now with the ego gets kind of underneath it. I wish more people would be aware of that. And that's part of our mission here at KPFK, I think, in our health shows and our spirituality shows. I was writing an article only this morning about offensive language and suggested that in most cases, if not all cases, abusive language is a defense mechanism. That like dueling gunfighters in the street, We have virtually no defense against verbal attacks, hostile language, or insults. And so if our only defense is to be offensive, then a lot of offensive language is a misguided attempt to defend oneself. And yet the individual doing that is, in most cases, unaware that their hostility is a defense mechanism for some, again, self-loathing or fear of inadequacy or insecurity or just simple confusion. All of that's anxiety. All of that is fear. Again, fear of what? I don't know. That's what fear is, not knowing, (laughs) not understanding. (laughs) You see, there's a lot in the world we don't understand and a lot about other people in our lives, even our families, that we may not understand. But moreover, when you don't understand yourself, that's the source of most fear and anxiety, is a failure to really understand why I feel the way I feel. We know more about what we think than why we feel the way we do, because we've only been taught to be logical and to reason things out. And that's the way people approach their feelings. They think about them. (laughs) At some point in your life, if you're at all introspective, you come to a point where you realize thinking about a feeling doesn't reveal very much. 
you have to use intuition. You have to actually feel the feeling and sit quietly with the feeling. I'll give you another allegory if you're open to it. <laughs> oh, yes, because this is a very big thing, what you're talking about. Like, if you're going to be thinking through a feeling, it's kind of like an oxymoron. I mean, you're thinking about your thinking. You didn't get to the feeling yet. Well, reverse it. I mean, imagine you have to write a check for $450, and you say, well, I'm not sure I have $450 in my bank account. Well, you would look in your check register or maybe go online to use your mental logic and your thinking process to determine the balance before you wrote the check to say, well, I feel like there ought to be enough money in there, so I'm going to go ahead and write the check. That's not very smart, right? You don't. <laughs> you wouldn't use your feelings for a situation where logic is called for. So why would you use your logic to understand your feelings? It's the wrong language. That key will not unlock the door. The language of feelings is intuition. And you can have advanced degrees, master's degrees, and PhDs, and never be exposed to the development of intuition. But the allegory I'll share with you very briefly, I call Feed the Ducks. And I would have us imagine that if we take a toddler, a little baby just learning to walk, to the city park to see the ducks at the pond, the toddler is going to want to chase the ducks. But the ducks will always outrun him or her, right? But as the child gets a little bit older, a little more patient, and you teach them to sit quietly and maybe spread a few breadcrumbs around, the ducks will slowly come in. And in time, that child will learn that attempts to reach out and grab that duck is always going to be futile. It'll always outrun it. But if you continue to sit quietly, the duck will come closer and closer. And that's how intuition works. If you hold a thought in your mind in a relaxed and quiet state, it will reveal itself to you. It'll roll over like a dog at your feet and show you its belly. It'll just dance in ecstasy before you, wondering why it took you so long to allow this wisdom to be revealed to you. But if you chase it with logic and reasoning, it's always going to outrun you. That's a great allegory. So how do you coach people to even realize they are intuitive? Because we're all intuitive. But in our culture, because we're such a thinking, logical culture, oftentimes that's not something that gets developed. Well, there has to be some instruction, first of all. I think people can be made aware. The first thing I usually do is explain the difference between intuition and instinct. I think instinct is like first or second chakra. It's at the root of the spine. It's basically an animal reflex. It's, oh, no, run away. Instinct tells you what to avoid. Intuition is upper solar plexus, heart-centered, it's more love-based, it's more spiritual, whereas instinct is animal, oh no. Intuition is more of a spiritual, oh boy. And it shows you what you do want. And so these are like polarities. And if you think of this bar magnet running from your heart to the base of your spine, then there are the poles, but there's that whole area in between. 
that is a blend of intuition and instinct. A little bit of, oh, no, and a little bit of, oh, boy, <laughs> this is what I want to avoid. This is what I want to move toward. And then there's meditation and visualization and deep relaxation and breathing and teaching people to literally move their awareness from their heads down into their bodies and feel their feelings and learn to be patient and remind people that we all know Eureka Illumination. We all know the aha experience. I interviewed years ago Joseph Chilton Pierce, the author of Crack in the Cosmic Egg, and he called intuition thoughts that arrive full-blown. And I always liked that phrase. Isn't it wondrous that this aha experience, this awareness arrives already dressed to go out? I mean, it's <laughs> the whole answer is there without the benefit of any reasoning whatsoever. And it even arrives with a visceral rush of confirmation. Not only do you think this may be right, but it shakes you to the very core of realizing, well, my God, that's obviously the insight, the understanding, the solution or resolution that I've been looking for. My God, why did it run away like those ducks? You know, why did I keep chasing it? It ran because you kept chasing it. If you sit and let it come to you, see, what it really comes down to, Nita, is facing our fear, sitting with the discomfort of our feelings, because most people, when they turn to their feelings, what's the first thing they encounter? A lot of hurt. So there are many allegories for this. The theme of my book, Fearless Intelligence, is the best parts of you are hidden where you're most afraid to look. <laughs> That's ironic. You see? Yeah. But it's true. The mythologist Joseph Campbell, I later learned, that came to me in a meditation. And much later, I read that Joseph Campbell said, the treasure you seek is in the cave that you're most afraid to enter. And we see this in the hero's journey, the monomyth that's in every classic story of, you know, the gold is always protected in the tower by the wicked witch or the dragon guards the gold or... You've got to kill some evil, you know. You've got to bring light to the darkness to get to the treasure you're looking for. We've got to face our fears. If we spend our lives running away from what we don't understand, all we're doing is chasing the darks. Well, Michael Benner, it has been so fabulous to have you with me today. I hate to go, but we have to one more time invite people to pledge support to KPFK Radio by phoning 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Michael Benner, people can hear you on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock. And what's a website where they can find you? TheAgelessWisdom.com. And the T-H-E is part of it, so after the W's, TheAgelessWisdom.com. Great. I'm also a resource for you. You can reach me at 818-783-6258. I want to thank Mark Maxwell in production, Gary Baca in Master Control. And please stay tuned for Arts and Review with Julio Martinez, followed by the Pacifica Performance Showcase with Donna Walker. We're streaming live on the web at kpfk.org worldwide. If you miss a program, please go to the audio archive link to catch up. 
And the quote I leave you with today is by Joseph Campbell. The privilege of a lifetime is being who you are. I'm Nita Valens. Thanks for listening. InterVision makes no claims to diagnose, treat, prevent, mitigate, or cure diseases, and the information that is discussed on the program is not to be construed as medical advice. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking medical treatment because of something you have heard on or accessed through this radio program. 